We're continuing in our series of messages from the gospel according to John that I've titled, The Message Became Flesh. And I do think that that's kind of the point of the whole gospel is that God has communicated to us in the incarnation in a supreme way. This is the ultimate communication of God to us. And in preparing uh, to preach the passage we're going to be looking at today, it, it, I was thinking about how easy it is to go an entire day without even thinking about God. You know what I'm talking about. You get caught up in work, the stuff of life, you're pursuing your hobbies, you're participating in entertainment, you're doing these things, and days can pass by without even stopping to consider God, perhaps not sensing any need for him. When is it we're most acutely aware of God? Well, most often I find this happens in moments of crisis. When things are happening in our lives that go completely beyond our ability to control, when cancer hits or some unexpected disaster overtakes us that we had not made plans for and we feel completely out of our depths, suddenly God has 100% of our attention. We can think of nothing else than God getting us out of this mess. Can you sense a problem here? in terms of a relationship with God? I think in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus realizes that faith is hard for us. And thankfully, I think we find in this passage that he's ready to meet us halfway, or I would say probably beyond halfway. Anyway, we're in John chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 43 through 54. I've titled today's message, Faith is Hard. Let's read verses 43 through 45. But after the two days, he departed from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself bore witness that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all the things he had done in Jerusalem in the feast, for they themselves had also gone to the feast. So let's, let's place this story within the narrative of what John is telling us about. We started with him doing his first sign in the wedding of Cana of Galilee where he changed water set apart for ritual purification. This wasn't set apart for drinking. It was set apart to fulfill the ritual cleansing that people expected uh, God wanted of them. And Jesus turned that into drinking wine for celebration at a wedding feast. Uh, John tells us that was his first sign. He's going to describe this as his second sign, but I don't think he's talking about his second sign overall because he tells us in chapter 2, verse 23, that uh, while he was in the Passover feast in Jerusalem, he did many signs. So I think he's referring to what the story we're looking at today is the second sign he did either specifically in Cana of Galilee or perhaps in Galilee in general, but that he had done other things further south in Judea and in Jerusalem. Uh, but John wants to draw attention to these two miraculous things God did, Jesus did, uh, because they signal important things he wants us to understand about Jesus. And we have kind of a bit of a, 
a contradictory sense here in these opening verses. Uh, so Jesus has uh, done this thing in Cana of Galilee. He went down to Passover and probably stayed there for the uh, feast of the, the unleavened breads. And uh, after that week is over, he's returning to Galilee and he goes through Samaria. There were other ways to get back, but he went through Samaria and ended up in the town of Sychar where he actually uh, spoke with a Samaritan woman and uh, confessed to her very openly, I am the Christ. And she ran into town and brought the whole town out to him. And the town asked him to stay with them. So Jesus stayed two days there in the town of Sychar. And he told his disciples about this, that this field is white unto harvest. This is the moment to reap for eternal life. There were lives Jesus was impacting during those two days in an eternal way. And he's completed these two days in Sychar and he's returning further north from Samaria. It's between Judea and Galilee. He continues on his way to Galilee. And he's trying to get to Capernaum, which is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. So along the way, between Samaria and Capernaum, he would pass through the town of Cana, which was at higher elevation. And from there, he would descend down to Capernaum. Uh, Cana was west of uh, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, so as he's going up there, John tells us something that Jesus had said. Jesus had borne witness, and again, that's another key term in John's gospel, the idea of bearing witness. It's one thing to just share information you read in a book or on Wikipedia. Bearing witness is something you have personally experienced, something you are an eyewitness to. So Jesus, when he says that Jesus bears witness to this, he's letting us know that this is not just a general observation, but this is a lived experience of Jesus that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. I think as God come to us in the flesh, there's a whole lot more behind that than just the experiences of Jesus in the years of his public ministry. I think God Almighty is telling his disciples right then, this has been my pattern with my people from the beginning. Think back on the history of Israel. Which of the prophets was welcomed with open arms? Almost all of them were persecuted, were told to shut up, and were, uh, many of them were killed by the Jews. And it's a consistent pattern through the Old Testament that prophets God sends to his people are never well received by his own people. And Jesus bears witness to this fact. And we are getting a kind of a foreshadowing in John's gospel of what is to come. And it will culminate in the crucifixion of Jesus. The ultimate moment in which forces array against him and the utter rejection of this messenger of God is made complete in the crucifixion. But there will be a long pattern through the gospel of John of hostility and rejection by his own people. Contrast that to how well he was received in the town of Sychar. So Jesus is talking about this, the fact that he is going to face rejection and opposition. And it may seem contradictory that in verse 45, he immediately follows that up with, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. It seems kind of out of place to the point that some scholars suggest that that verse 44 was somehow inserted later after the fact. Of course, 
there's no manuscript evidence to support that. It's just because it seems so jarring that some people want to say, well, maybe it wasn't there to begin with. But I think it's intentional. I think John is conveying one of the big themes in his gospel is this idea of wavering back and forth between a positive response to Jesus and a negative response. He has passages where in the beginning he says these Jews believed in Jesus, but then they enter into a conversation with Jesus, at the end of which they want to stone him. And this theme of how fickle our faith can be is a dominant theme in the Gospel of John and how easily uh, and how, uh, how nuanced and difficult the whole concept of faith is. It's not just signing a document. It's not just agreeing to something. It's more than that. And we can see in the experiences of people this wavering back and forth between genuine trust and an orientation of faith toward Jesus and a rejection of him. I think we can probably see some of that even in our own lives. And this is the contrast. No prophet is, has honor in his own hometown, and yet when he arrives, he is welcomed heartily by the Galileans because they had been down in the Passover feast and had seen the signs that he had done there. And they certainly had great expectations for the Messiah. They had been told by their teachers that the Messiah would show up and uh, he would establish the eternal kingdom of God and that every nation on earth would be brought to submission under the kingdom of God. And in the Jews' minds, that meant that Rome was going to be gone. They would no longer call the shots. And now their Messiah would be the benevolent ruler of all the earth and they as his people would be his rulers They would be the new Roman Empire. Now, as long as that's where they think Jesus is going, people are all gung-ho about him. But as soon as Jesus starts turning away from their expectation, this belief, this welcoming, uh, quickly turns to hostility. I have a question from these verses. John reminds us of Jesus' words about a prophet being given no honor in his home country right before he tells us how the Galileans eagerly welcomed him back from Jerusalem. In what ways have you seen the same kind of fickle attitude toward God in your own life? Let's keep reading verses 46 through 49. So he came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick in Capernaum. This one, hearing that Jesus is coming from Judea to Galilee, went to him and was asking him that he might descend and heal his son, for he was about to die. So Jesus said to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you never believe. The royal official is saying to him, Lord, come down before my child dies. As Jesus arrives in Cana of Galilee, and John ties this together for us thematically by reminding us this is where he turned the water to wine. And there in that town, he he runs across a royal official who actually lives in Capernaum. And has actually come looking for Jesus because he has a crisis situation in his life. His dearly beloved son is on his deathbed. He is sick and he knows his days are not long in this world unless something dramatic happens. 
and changes. He hears Jesus is on his way back. He hears from others who returned a few days before him of all the amazing things he was doing in Jerusalem. So he says, this is, this is the answer. Let me find this man of God and ask him to do something with my son. And he does. He finds Jesus. And he's asking him to please descend. Again, I said it was kind of downhill from Cana to Capernaum. To descend and heal his son because he is about to die. And as so often happens with Jesus, the thing he says in response to this kind of seems to have nothing to do with what the man was talking about. Have you ever noticed that about Jesus' conversations? People will say something and then what Jesus responds seems to be something completely different. And yet, every time Jesus is hitting on the key issue and the person talking to him is somehow distracted with something of lesser importance. Now here, what Jesus says to him is not specifically directed to him alone because that you in the Greek is plural. Uh, we, we have a second person plural in Texas. It's y'all. But most English speakers don't have a second person plural. Uh, so if your translation just says, unless you see signs, you might think he's just talking to this one man. But he uses the plural, unless all of you, unless all of you out there don't see signs and wonders, you never believe. And I, I think, again, we find here God expressing his frustration with humankind. I'm reminded of his words in Numbers after all the amazing things God did to break the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and deliver them and humiliate the most mighty army in the world at the time and miraculously brought them through the Red Sea and fed them and provided them with water where there was no water and was with them in a column of smoke, uh, a cloud during the day and a, a, a column of fire at night. I mean, what more could God have done to communicate to them his commitment to be with them? And to do for them what he had promised. And yet when they reach the promised land. And they find that not only is it as good as God had said. But also they are told that there are mighty giant warriors living in the land. And they say there's no way. Oh yeah. God took care of the mightiest army on earth back there. But that was back then. There's no way we can take over this land. And they immediately were talking about, who can we get lead us back to Egypt now? And God talks to Moses and basically says, what do I have to do? After all I've done, what must I do for these people to believe in me? What does it take? I think that's exactly what Jesus is voicing here. That it is a human condition that faith is very hard for us. That we always uh, find ways to get distracted, to turn our attention elsewhere, to build up idols for ourselves, to take the place of God in our hearts. We are constantly turning away. And we are so steeped in our own self-centered, sinful hearts. That turning our eyes to God is extremely difficult for us. 
And I think it gets harder the longer we live. Children seem to find faith easy. And it gets harder and harder, doesn't it? The older we get, the harder our hearts become. And Jesus says, unless God does something amazing, there's no way any of you would ever believe. That's our condition. If God doesn't step in and do something, there's not a prayer in the world any of us will ever come to the kind of faith we need to have in God for rescue to happen. We're too caught up in ourselves. We're too pointed elsewhere. That is a huge problem. That is really a terrifying reality. And notice how the, the officials, the royal official, makes Jesus' point immediately. Because he completely ignores what Jesus just told him and goes right back to why he was there. I need you, Jesus, to take care of my son. That's all I want. That's all I'm interested in. I'm not, I didn't come here because I'm looking for God. I just want my son to live. And so often what we call faith is nothing more than wanting God to do stuff for us. He immediately brings it right back. Lord, come down before my child dies and I have great sympathy for this father. Any of you who have children know that it, if your child is very ill, it consumes the landscape of your heart. You can think of nothing else. It's very hard to turn your attention to anything other than that. And I think Jesus is not simply expressing frustration. As the rest of this story plays out, we'll see that he is showing his willingness to do what he has to do to make it possible for us to come to faith. He doesn't just sit back and say, wow, you guys should try harder. He knows faith is hard, and he's going to do something about it. I have a question from these verses. Jesus said that we need signs and wonders to come to faith. What has God done in your life to give you grounds for faith? And how have you responded to his activity? What does Jesus do for this father? Jesus is saying to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he was on his way. But as he was descending, his slaves met him saying that his boy lives. So he inquired of them the hour in which he had begun to get better. So they told him yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he believed and his whole household. Jesus did this as a second sign as he departed from Judea into Galilee. How does Jesus respond to the request? He turns to the man and says, Go, your son lives. Notice Jesus didn't say, Your son is well. Your son will heal. Your son will recover. One of the key words in John's gospel is the word life or the verb to live. 
In fact, as we go through the gospel, we'll find that word over and over again. And Jesus says tremendous things about life. In fact, in chapter 20, when he says, why did I write this whole gospel? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you might have eternal life. The whole goal of this gospel is that we find life. Jesus in the Gospel of John says, I am the life. He tells us in his prologue, in him was life. And that light, uh, life was the light of the world. So when Jesus says, your son lives, he's speaking as only God can speak. We look at the Old Testament and the importance given to life. The most, one of the most powerful symbols throughout the whole Old Covenant is blood. And it is, we are told very clearly that it represents life. That is why we do not eat it, we do not touch it, we do not use it, because life belongs to God alone. And blood has been given for us only to give up to God on the altar because God is not only the author of life, he is the sustainer of life. Life belongs only to God. So Jesus chooses his words carefully. Go, your son lives. Jesus spoke with the authority of God Almighty and said, your son lives. And here's the amazing thing. The man responded in faith. He believed. He believed the word, the logos, the communication, the message Jesus spoke to him. How do we know that he believed? He left. Now, even in the Bible, long-distance miracles are very uncommon. Miracles are uncommon. But long-distance ones where the person... Uh, Performing the miracle is not even present? There are very, very few of those in the Bible. So when Jesus says, go, you don't need me to run down there. I did it right now. Just go. The way we know the Father believed him is that he didn't sit around and say, well, you know, I'd feel really a lot, a lot better, Jesus, if you'd just come and do it yourself where I can see it because I'm just, No. He immediately left. And I think we find this in the Bible, that the truest evidence of genuine faith is obedience. If we believe what God says, then we're going to do what he said because we believe, we have faith, we have trust that he knows and what he says is true and it, we can take it to the bank. There's no need to be hesitant about it. This man responds in obedience. He goes and as he's descending, he's going down from Cana. This kind of gives us a timeline. Uh, so Cana was about a day's walk, a little less than 20 miles from Capernaum. So that means this man probably left the day before to travel up and encounters Jesus on the following day, midday, encounters him there in Cana. And uh, when Jesus says go, he immediately heads back. But it's a day's journey, so he can't make it all the way back in one uh, half day. So he has to stop somewhere along the way and spend the night. This is the second day since he left his son sick. 
The next morning he gets up and continues his journey and before he arrives in Capernaum he encounters his slaves who come to meet him and give him the great news that his son lives. And he asks, when did that happen? And they say, one o'clock yesterday. The fever just, boom, left. And the father knew. He had been paying attention. That's exactly when Jesus said that. Your son lives. And he believed. And his whole household. And John highlights the importance of this by saying, this is the second sign. Jesus did this as a second sign as he departed from Judea into Galilee. And I've told you, he already said that he'd been doing signs in Jerusalem, so numerically it's not the second sign overall, but this is the second sign in Cana, the second sign perhaps in Galilee, and there's something significant about these two signs. In the first one, God communicates, I haven't come just to burden you with ritual. I have come to uh, break out the wine of celebration and sit at table with you and invite you to the feast of life I have prepared for you and in his second sign he admits I know this is hard for you and I will do what I have to do to make faith possible for you what signs and wonders are necessary I know and I will do them I will intervene in your life to make faith possible for you I think that's what this second sign conveys. Both that God knows how hard faith is for us and that God doesn't just sit back and say, well, you should just try harder, but that God instead says, I will do what I have to do to make faith possible for you. Now, I will tell you, That in these moments of crisis, like this father faced, and when we turn to Jesus, he does not always respond by doing exactly what we asked him to do. Many times he does. Many times we're in that moment of crisis, we pray for deliverance, and it happens. You know why God does that? It's not because making life easy for you is his top priority. It's because he wants you to turn to him and find in him the true life he has for you. Sadly, I think we miss out because when God does do things in our life, when those moments, when the the veil clears and we can see the hand of God at work in our lives, we enjoy it momentarily and we immediately forget and move on to the next thing. But God is calling us to faith if we will just take hold of those moments in life where he is reaching out to us. This man did. His whole household did. I have a question from these final verses. Jesus did an amazing thing in the life of the royal official, and he responded in faith that resulted in immediate obedience to his instructions. In what ways is your faith in Jesus made evident by your obedience to him? Faith is hard. At least how the Bible defines faith is hard. This idea of absolute surrender of everything we are, identity, purpose, goal in life, just letting Jesus be all of that. That's hard for us. We're much more disposed to turn God, uh, 
uh, turn from God to ourselves. We're, we're much more disposed to focus inward and away from God. But Jesus, I think, demonstrated in this second sign in Cana of Galilee that he knows both how hard it is for us to turn to him in genuine faith and that he responds sympathetically to that hard uh, task and that he breaks into our lives and shatters through the darkness so that we have these moments where we can take hold of him if only we will. God has not abandoned us to sin, but calls us to himself. In these moments of crisis, may we not only discover that Jesus is there, but may we also cling to him, not only in the moment of crisis, but through every breathing moment of our lives. May we fully embrace the faith he makes possible for us. Let me say a word of prayer. God, thank you that you don't leave us in darkness and that you move heaven and earth to draw us to yourself. Lord, give us eyes that are eagerly looking for you, not just to fix our problems, but to the deeper need we have as creatures created by you and for you that we discover our identity and purpose in you. May we find the faith that you uh, make possible in our lives. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.